You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Well, we're in we're at uh, we're in Asbury's Beeson Center, and I've got a couple of doctoral students here with me, and looks like a good Don't number. Don't think of... we're smart though. Don't yeah. get any ideas. You can't see them, but it's good to see many of you joining. I want to welcome you. Uh, we were working through Romans last year, and we started, I think, in like chapter six, but then I started recording in seven, and someone is working to make those videos available. I went through Romans 12, but we thought we would um, <clears throat> start with a new book, uh, and um, the, idea, the idea was to work with Luke. So hopefully you can see my screen. Um, can you... Can you see that? Yes. Yeah, we can see it. Good, good. Now I've got a color coding uh, applied filter in my Logos Bible software. And uh, may, some of you may not be able to see it if you're colorblind, which you know some people are. But if you can see it, uh, green are conjunctions. That's green. Uh, no, that's been there. Purple are prepositions. Orange are conjunctions. And in this case, you have really a combination of a conjunction with, um, with uh, uh, and I might just highlight that green because that's really a conjunction, ke plus uh, a pronoun. So I might put a green highlight on that just to alert me that there's something else going on there. Uh, red are non-indicative moods. So infinitives, participles, uh, subjunctives. And then uh, blue are adverbs. And then there's some other additional marking. Hi, Mara. Uh, gray uh, highlighted words are uh, quantitatively specified words. And I found uh, that often such quantified specification carries uh, not only semantic weight, but also uh, Prominence uh, is for the for the sake of prominence, and it's all. And then these these yellow highlighted words are perfect tense, uh, perfect tenses, imperfect, pluperfect, and then uh, per perfect. Now the purpose of this <clears throat> color coding is that, Leah, is that uh, I teach exegesis around these. Uh, uh, these areas. So pronouns, for example, will often tell a story. And, and plus there are, you know, Greek has nine, really, if you start adding the different kinds of qualitative, quantitative pronouns, I mean, it has a dozen or so different pronouns. And so some of them are quite exegetically significant, and they're not translated very well. <clears throat> so, so something as simple as a pronoun, paying attention to the story, the perspective, of, of the discourse, as well as the special uses of pronouns and special pronouns is often exegetically significant. So with that overview, um, yeah, of just the color coding, what you're seeing, <clears throat> I'll read through the Greek text. I might ask for some other people to read through. Uh, I use a Koine era pronunciation, which don't is- Don't worry, we don't all use that though. Yeah, but so <laughs> the Erasmian pronunciation system was pretty much made up and, and came out of a climate of not liking the Greek 
culture. At the time, there was anti-Greek sentiment, Hellenistic sentiment. So really, uh, we want to try to be historically accurate as much as we can. And so the Koine Arab pronunciation is a way to do that. Plus, it, it helps us to recover some of the poetics and rhyming of the text. I'm not a real good pronouncer. Uh, don't If you don't want to get too hung up on that, that's fine. Good. Yeah, Jesse. Okay. So we'll just struggle with that a little bit. Um, some people are really good pronouncers, but... Well, I can pronounce nicely in Kep. Kep? Good. I mean, yeah, yeah, Kep. So we call Koine era pronunciation Kep. Um, all right. Well, this is the opening of Luke's gospel, and it's really a tour de force of... Hmm of um we'll see of kind of vir <clears throat> virtue signaling of literary ancient literary um ideas and words there is a lot of technical language in these opening verses that would have been recognizable to a trained rhetorician trained historian <clears throat> jewish historical words uh Greek historical words, and I'll try to point out some of those to you, but it really is it really is a tour de force, as well as some virtue signaling of, hey, I can do uh, historical writing, and you should pay attention to that. So, epi de per polu epikiresan, and a taxis the diegesin periton pepleiro for menon and umin pragmaton. We'll go ahead and just start with that. Um, would anyone like to translate? I mean, I think I'd be cheating if I just read the last week. That's okay. No, I didn't volunteer myself. <laughs> so, epi okay. de pair. So, uh, strange conjunction. Um, since much, because much, um, not much, but many. many. Oh, yes. Okay. It's Luke 1. Nominative. That's the subject of uh, this clause. Many have <clears throat> attempted to compose Anatasso. Anatasso. To orderly arrange. To right, order, and then the next word is like. Diegesin. Yeah, so like to orderly arrange. Uh, That's the direct object. It's third declension noun. I, 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 I can read some. Diegesis. A narrative. Yeah, a narrative. Concerning. Classical. Um, That's um, a perfect middle passive participle, masculine, or actually here neuter genitive plural, going with pragmaton, which is the parse the same. It's uh, from pragma, um, yeah, deeds or things accomplished. Yes. So many have basically attempted to compile a narrative concerning mm -hmm. 
what has like con concerning what has been fulfilled in the these events in the in so concerning the events or matters having been fulfilled among us so this is a when i work with uh, greek sentences you need to think of of them in terms of chunks and usually things that belong together will be together now there's violations of that usually for rhetorical effect um and these when they're when they're not when they're not together when they should be together it's they're called discontinuous constituents and you can see that with a, a verb and sometimes the direct object will become after it and then there'll be a modifier of the direct object put forward or vice versa and usually <clears throat> when you have that kind of discon discontinuity, it's for some kind of rhetorical or effect. <coughs> but generally, things that belong together stay together. And here you have a, you have a big sandwich technique. Uh, I call it a sandwich where you have a preposition with its object, peri, peri going with pragma, pragmaton. And then you have sandwiched in between it uh, a participle and then it's um, it's adjunct or um, it's prepositional phrases modifying it having been fulfilled among us. <coughs> so these are modifiers that are modifying pragmaton. And uh, so when we, we run across a participle, uh, we always need to ask what kind of participle is it? What kind of function does it have? And this one is an adjectival use. And then when we think of adjectival uses of participles, we need to think of the types of adjectival uses, functions generally. And those are attributive when they're modifying a noun or a substantive, which this one is. We could also think of substantive use when the adjective stands alone and functions like a noun. And then we have a predicate, predicate use where it's part of a, a statement being made about a subject, those are typically nominative case. So we don't have that here. Other adjectival uses I classify would be uh, adverbial when the, usually it's a neuter singular is used of an adjective. So that, that doesn't really apply to participles. So yeah, this is an, this is a um, adjectival attributive use of the participle. So this is from a verb, pleroforeo, to fulfill. Um, and so what, what I start to then look at, so we have uh, uh, this verb of uh, undertaken, so epi kareo, uh, and it is working with a complementary infinitive. So again, once you see a non-indicative mood, you need to think what construction is it in. So this is something, these non-indicative moods are typically something you'd learn in second semester Greek, depends on the textbook. Uh, but so now let's kind of look at some of the prominence devices and construction. So epidepair. So one of the benefits of learning beginning Greek is that you learn typically vocabulary occurring 50 times or more. And these are, this is kind of the standard vocabulary that gets you about 81% of the words in the Greek New Testament. And one of the benefits of that is that if you start encountering words that have a lesser frequency, you're getting into a choice that the author is making uh, to choose one word as opposed to a more, maybe perhaps a more common word. 
Now, when I look at epidepair, I would say this is a jacked up conjunction. I call it jacked up. It's not common. That's right. It's not common. You're not going to learn this one in beginning Greek one and two, typically. You're not going to learn it. Uh, you might be able to get a P. A P is what you might learn. So actually, this conjunction is jacked up because it actually has two additional morphological elements, the day and then the pair. Now, pair is really fun because the you could look up pair in our lexicons. Um, here I have LSJ open, Liddell Scott Jones. This is the standard classical lexicon. Uh, we can also look it up in, um, in BDAG. And what's interesting about pair is that it never occurs alone in New Testament Greek. It's always added to conjunctions. And I would say it's added for in, uh, effect. It's added for effect. And even our lexicon recognizes that with intensive or extensive force. So when this word is added to conjunction, there's some stress, additional stress on it. It takes a little bit more cognitive effort for the listener to hear it. They would recognize this as being jacked up. And then the, the day is also um, adding something here. So day, and, and you get these long um, conjunctions that are, are piling up different things. Uh, and this, this is, uh, again, our, I think our lexicons are correct in this case, a marker that invites attention to what is being stated. So this is ramped up in two ways, epidepair, uh, since, since, because, but, but uh, it's really more than that. Um, now, it's interesting that this lexicon, I mean, the, the translation here, NASB translated in as much as. So, yeah, I don't know what to think about that. You can see that the, the lexical entry for Epidepair is intensified form of epide. Um, so epide has its own uh, lexical entry. Uh, when, after, uh, reason, or cause, because. So yeah, I'm not sure I'm really happy with this translation in as much as. You could um, say since. Yeah, you could say since. And I would then want to somehow capture the intensive force of the day and the pair. And, and so I've translated through Mark's gospel now with the Glossa House illustrated Mark, translated through John, I've translated through the book of Acts. <clears throat> and in those translations, especially John and, Mark, and Acts, Acts especially, I wanted to translate everything that was there. And so it's kind of hard to do that in this case, because you have three components, the epi, the day, and the pair. So since indeed, <clears throat> and maybe like in fact or something I might add. Because if we, Why? If we are trying to do every little sense of something that was in a language that doesn't function like ours, like when we say since, we, we're saying in as much, we can still be communicating that force. Really? One word. The semantic idea of, of cause, but are we really translating the force? No, I would say. And nuance. The language you're dealing with the author's choice. 
Yeah. So the author yeah. made a choice here. Why did to we ramp choose it up. to intensify yeah. this? So this then, then we could say <clears throat> so in as much as. Yeah, I don't think so. Or so since. Well, I don't even think that in as much as captures it. Since indeed, in fact, might do it. See, but then that's as, as um, my friend Bill Mouse says, that's trash can English. Not really. I think it makes perfectly good sense. That's it's a jacked up way of saying because. So anyway, these are, these, are, <clears throat> these are translational philosophies, but I pay attention to nuance. Like this is a choice and this is the beginning of a literary work and that Luke would begin with such a, a large conjunction, I think carries effect and we should somehow try to translate that, um, that literary um, nuance that he has here. Mara, were you gonna say something? Um, <clears throat> when you were going over the different parts, somehow I was gleaning that this, the Epi Deiper had more of a despite, like even though, and was I like not hearing you right at all? Yeah, the, yeah the, I don't think it has an even though, it's more of a because or since. Because. <clears throat> okay because others have tried, <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe, um, that's a suggestion. Since uh, indeed, in fact, I think, um, I think, you know, we have to look at what's Luke's point here. There is, uh, so they, they've endeavored to ride up to an orderly, uh, so this is from Anna and Tasso, so they've endeavored to write up a narrative, um, yeah, and so we have to keep translating. What is it that he's really striving after? He wants, you know, basically Luke is 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 going to be adding something. He's going to be doing something, and we're going to get to the main sentence. This is all subordinate clauses. The main sentence actually is found in verse three: "Edoxen ke emi para koti." Um, it seemed good also to me, and then what seemed good to write up, to write up accurately in order for you. <laughs> so that's, um, that's, that's what Luke, that's the main sentence. It seemed, it seemed uh, good to me to write up for you an orderly, uh, accurate, accurate and orderly account so so luke is i think he's saying this is a worthwhile topic i think that's the main point that that is in fact many have 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 undertaken to write up an orderly account the narrative um and so he's adding to this growing literature this growing un undertaking and <clears throat> he is profiling uh, what he's doing <clears throat> by the modifiers accurately, acribos, and then in an orderly uh, fashion. Um, and so this, this word acribos is found in Thucydides' history, and this is a part of his value as a historian. And, and, and so Thucydides is often thought to be the history, a father of, of modern history. Of course, that discounts like biblical narratives, which they were, what were they doing? <laughs> but, you know, modern in terms of Western civilization, okay. Herodotus was before him, 
but but Thucydides is often thought to really make a like a cell. He's well, well. What's what's interesting and important about Thucydides' uh, Peloponnesian War uh, is that he is self-reflective about the process of evaluating evidences, working with eyewitnesses or not, and admitting he's like, look, I wasn't present at everything, and so I've had to kind of reconstruct it based on what probably most likely needed to be said. And so Thucydides is actually creating these speeches and it's, it's a really amazing work, but in his preface, his prologue, he is self-reflective and just admits certain things. Well, Luke is using some of this terminology um, here, but he also is saying, it seemed good also for me. So this is a, a crisis of uh, care and emu and um, Emu is a uh, emphatic uh, form of mu. You've got uh, the personal program, a pro, a pronoun ego, mu, mi, and me. But you can ramp those up by adding an epsilon to the front. So rather than me, you can have eme. Rather than mu, you can have emu, emu, and uh, whatnot. Now, <clears throat> because this has a ke added on the front, a chi or a ke, um, this is already adding something different and, and for prominence, adding Luke to the picture, mm -hmm. even I. So it seemed good also to me, for me. <clears throat> and then this me is, is uh, qualified by this participle clause, having followed uh, everything from the beginning, uh, or <clears throat> or is the on, anothen modifying to write up? Probably writing up. So this writing up, then, I mean, this is a this is where we have to. This is what we have to uh, decide: is what's modifying what. So in, in, in Greek, you have main sentence elements. You have subjects, verbs, objects that are required by the verb. And then we have conjunctions at the front that tend to be fronted. Everything else in the sentence is a modifier. And we need to decide what does each modifier modify. And this is the this is the practice of exegesis. And then we we also can ask how does it modify it, and then at a higher level of thinking in terms of discourse, why does it modify it? So what are the basic elements? What what are the modifiers? What modifies what? How does it modify it, and why does it so modify it? So we're looking really at the main sentence is right here, and it's. It's jacked up. <laughs> it's jacked up because um, you have an extra care with a emphatic form of the pronoun, and that those probably go together. <clears throat> you have a perfect tense verb form, a participle that is modifying the me, and it probably requires some of these adverbs to go with it. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of standing there, look, having followed. And so typically in the translation, you can see that this is where they've, they, they've put that these modifiers are um, working with 
parakaleo, um, followed. Now this verb following takes the dative. So here you have the pasin is the dative from pas pas upon, having followed everything. Now, how has he followed it? Well, there's two adverbs, anothen, from the beginning, and then akribos, um, accurately. And this is, you know, this raises questions for us. Like, how has this author, which we presume is Luke, how has he followed up? Does this mean that he was present? Or just that he, like, in other words, followed uh, Jesus from the beginning? Was he one of the disciples? Was he attending? Or, but notice, but notice that you follow somebody with the person attended in the dative. So dative of person. <clears throat> well, we don't have a dative of person. We have a dative of thing which might mean that the following has to do with kind of like research, like following up everything uh, from the beginning and then accurately. So this would be not that he's followed Jesus per se, but that he is uh, paying careful attention, taking note of, and notice that then our lexicon has an entry that indicates we have a data of thing, you're, you're dealing with a different kind of following. Yeah. So then, then we have the infinitive, which technically is the subject of edoxen. So edoxen means to, to, to uh, seem or to be, uh, to deem, to deem. And what's uh, deemed good? To suppose, think. Um, and this, uh, what, what seems good to me is then the subject to write up carefully for you. So to write up carefully for you seemed good also to me. So I know that kind of sounds weird because we can, we can translate it into English. That makes sense. Like it seemed good to me to write up to you. But really grammatically, the, to write up is the subject of that verb. And it's, it's typical within this construction. <clears throat> so technically that is the subject, this part here that I have uh, in highlight right here. It seemed good to, to me uh, to write up accurately for you seemed good also to me. All right, and then we have evocative. Kratiste theophile. Um, vocatives, typically when we learn them, we, we may not memorize the endings because uh, they're often easily recognizable because they're set off by commas. And that's what we have here. And this is a superlative form of an adjective. So uh, adjectives have three degrees. The, uh, the basic degree, which I forget its name, then we have the comparative, what's it called? The ordinal, no, it's cardinal. No, those are numbers. There's like a, the, the basic meaning. Uh, but then, so this positive. is- Positive. Positive, thank you. 
positive degree. Thank you. So you have a positive degree. So this is from kratus, meaning strong, <clears throat> but then you can put it into a comparative form, which is another degree. Um, and then you can put it into the superlative degree. And that's what we have here, most excellent Theophilus. And <clears throat> this, this superlative degree is found in the book of Acts twice, referring to Roman officials, Festus and Felix. And that may be a clue that Theophilus may be some kind of Roman official, maybe even the patron of Luke writing this, who's been commissioned to write this out. And there's, a, there's an audiobook series, I forget, it might have been Focus on the Family or some other that <clears throat> was kind of <clears throat> dramatizing this. And, and actually, that, that was the situation that they had, that, that Theophilus was a patron uh, who was like supporting Luke um, to write this account up. And I think it's very pl plausible. Uh, Theophilus is curious too, because it means literally God lover, friend of God. And so it, it could be that this is any reader who might consider him or herself a friend of God. That's another possibility. Uh, some other proposals are that this is a priest or a high priest of, of some kind. Um, yeah, Theophilus is a, a priest. He's just his friend. Yeah. Okay. Hey, so that's verse three. Any other questions? Yes. Hey, this is Brian. Um, is Brian. there is there a reason that we wouldn't necessarily see those three adverbs in order, where Luke is kind of adding emphasis by stacking them? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's good. Rather than putting it with as kind of pertaining to I write to you, but he's like stacking these right. So it's everything carefully from the beginning. And it seems to me in, in order, right? It just, it feels like, is there a grammatic reason why we wouldn't stack those and see them as an intensive kind of thing on his part? Yeah, I think the, um, the stacking is certainly taking place. So you have um, some, you know, if you, if you think about the reader or the audience hearing this, they would be hearing three adverbs in a row and they'd have to be processing which one goes with which. And I was doing that. I do think that the first two need to go with parakaleo. Kale uh, um, and then that the, this accuracy one or like in order needs to go with writing up. But, but there is certainly an effect of, of, of having these three adverbs kind of piled in near proximity. But you would say that, that the in order needs to go with to write. I think so. Okay. Yeah, I think so. But, you know, in terms of like a preaching point or a teaching point, yeah, from the beginning, accuracy, and then, and then laid out, you know, in order. But I think the in order is the narrative construct that Luke is going to be providing. Yeah, which becomes really interesting when you compare... The, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the Sermon of the Mount is scattered across Luke in like three or four different chapters. So that's interesting. So then that begins you, and if he's claiming that he's trying to do it more accurately in a certain kind of order, then that raises the question whether Matthew's Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is an epitome, which I think it is. I think it is, but I would tell my students, it's not, it's not like Jesus couldn't have said this all together, and he may have, 
And he said these things more than once, you know, I'm a teacher and I'm teaching all the time and I repeat things. And sometimes it's more polished, sometimes not, but in keeping with kind of the teacher tradition, the philosophical tradition, we had uh, Jonathan Pennington here last week, talk to us about Jesus as a philosopher. And if you read Hans Dieter Betz's commentary in the Hermeneia series, uh, he, he lays out the arguments why we should understand this from the Mount as an epitome, like a compilation of the teachings of Jesus. And I'm, I'm really quite okay with this. This is a matter of literary form. But Luke does, those, those con the content from the Sermon on the Mount is found in different locations in Luke. And, and uh, you know, he's, he's trying to lay out things in a certain order uh, that is meaningful. Say we're a little past it, but the epi de pair mounts suggests considering that. So the in in what what in verse? One, in one 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 epi de pair considering that considering that many mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. considering so making it kind of like in a participle kind of idea. Yeah, with the implied sense or in the context of these other. Yeah. Okay. So, can I ask one more question? And I yes. know there's nothing ahead with this, but you've got three adverbs there that are kind of stacked. That, yeah. And then you follow that in, in verse four with the uh, um, catechesis. Yeah. I'm just wondering about the interplay between those as Luke is kind of working through. Um, I mean, assuming, and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but um, with, uh, with catechesis there being... Um, Cath, cathex, cath, yeah. Oh, sorry. Six. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but just wondering about the interplay between those adjectives, I mean, those adverbs, even though they're not modifying so close together. Um, yeah, they're not modifying the same. Yeah, I don't think. Right. But I'm just, I, I, again, maybe I'm jumping, forgive me. But um, if you look at verse four, you know, I think of when I see that. In, when I see um, kataikeo, um, you know, instruct, catechize. Yep. Um, yep, yep. And then but kind of following those three specific adverbs, mm -hmm. my radar pings a little bit. Oh, yeah, they're all related. So the first two really have to relate to Luke's uh, authority um, to, to write such a thing. And then... The, the, set, the third adverb has to do with his skill and relates particularly to the act, the point of accuracy, which is the, the purpose of all of this. So um, we'll, we'll go to verse four. We'll come back to verse two. But in order that, ina, ina epignos, this is the purpose. This is the goal of his carefully writing up is that you would know and I like to translate purpose clauses as would know, not may know, might know. Because if you think about a purpose, the outcome, while the outcome is uncertain, and so you might suggest a may or might. On the other hand, that translation is kind of like how students are taught generally to translate subjunctives, which I think is often wrong. Like there's not many constructions where may or might actually is used for the subjunctive. Instead, a purpose construction expresses the intentionality and the goal. 
and that goal is in fact certain, would, in order that you would. Now, whether that's realized or not, that's not in Luke's purview. His goal is clear that you would know, not that you may know. Like, so I'm writing this and maybe you will know, maybe, no, he's writing with the goal that he would know. There's no may or might attached to his purpose. And that is dependent on how you understand the mandatory name of the word may in English. True. And I would think that for most English speakers, may is soft. And I would argue for that. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas would is not. So yeah, this is a peculiarity of me. But um, if I think if you think about it, has like often had the implication of being past. No, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I would feel like would is like a firm. It's firm. In order, especially when you're with in order that. Yeah, you may do, you may not. And that's on the receiver's end. You can't control that. But when you're talking about from the author's perspective, the writers, the intention is, is actually very clear. They're not wishy-washy. Yeah, I'm going to write these 24 chapters and then acts and may, you know, may, you know, maybe you'll get it. No, he wants them to get it in order that you would know the certainty. So there's the direct object of no. And then the certainty and then um, the certainty of the words. I would suggest that the logon is actually fronted uh, a modifier of the certainty, the certainty of the words. And it's probably because it's attracted to its relative pronoun clause concerning which you were taught. The words concerning which you were taught, the certainty of the words. And then you have a relative pronoun clause, peri on. It's genitive masculine plural, agreeing with logon. And then you have a, a word of catechesis, katekeo, uh, which is pretty remarkable. So we have, uh, we're going to see that we actually have three cultural terms of, of passing on. We've encountered two of them already. We've got a diagesis. We've got catechesis. And then we're going to encounter perididomi, which is uh, like more of a Jewish understanding of passing along of traditions. Like I said, Luke is virtue signaling his ability to write in the register of, of history and, and teaching. Yeah. All right. So this last clause is a purpose clause with, uh, with a relative pronoun clause that is modifying and filling out logon. And so this would suggest that Theophilus actually has already received some catechesis, some instruction of, of some type. And we don't want to be anachronistic, you know, like, are we talking third century, fourth century catechesis of the church? No, but still this, this word did did um, did ha have some meaning of teaching and instruction. And um, yeah, I don't know if there's been a dissertation written on that, like to really study what, what this would imply in the first century context, maybe later first century. All right. So any questions so far? We've, we kind of skipped ahead to the 
main sentence and its adverbs. And then we went to the purpose clause. And so basically, the whenever you have a purpose clause, you, you need to consider the means, the means of uh, by which this is achieved, um, which is here, to write an orderly account. So this orderly account, this writing out of an orderly account is the means by which uh, that, that Theophilus would know the certainty of the matters or the words. And really, logon can mean matter. We, we tend to think of it as words, but it, it has a broader sense of that. Yeah, so someone has asked, um, can we speak a little bit more about Ana Tasso? Yeah, um, I don't know how this word is used culturally, but it's from Tasso, which is a very common root uh, verb stem, particularly in classical culture. And then with the ana, you're adding a prepositional, freedom, uh, a prepositional prefix, which I think is probably additive. It may be just intensive. When you, whenever you have a, pre, a preposition, sometimes we, it's apparent how it adds meaning to the, to the, the verb stem. In this case, um, I think it may be additive. It might be intensive to, to organize in a series because tasso already means organize. Uh, well, I think Tasso means to order things. Yeah, and I was just thinking uh, your comments about, you know, the philosophical Jesus. I mean, here, here, this is a heavily philosophical Greek concept, you know, Platonism of the order of the ideas. Okay. You know, it has a, it has a um, very heavy metaphysical connotation to okay. it, e even a political connotation. Like in, you know, in Athens right now, the, the, uh, civic square is called syntagma you know the the noun version of tasso yeah. um so it's you know it has this he very heavy idea of putting things in a proper logical uh space in a in a yeah again very philosophical frame so i i didn't know how that related to verse three if you know if mm -hmm. uh cathexis cathexis is that if that's just chronology or or how do those two relate do you see any relation there well i mean the first thing that comes to me, thank you for that contribution. Yeah, these words are very rich. Um, I think, I think what 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 you, if what you says holds that this is actually kind of a philosophically charged or enriched word that it really affirms what these other people have done. Because a lot of times we think, oh well, Luke is writing out of a, a, a disappreciation of what others have done, when really this is like look, they've really gone at this in a quite affirming way. I can affirm it as, as anatasso, <laughs> you know, anatasso man. Um, I think that's significant. Um, and, but yeah, in terms of um, <coughs> orderliness, I, I guess I might suggest that this might imply that Luke wants to have a little bit more historical um, accuracy, which is kind of lining up with, if you start to line up the words that he's using, it, uh, you know, acrobos, in order, accuracy, it seems like he's after more of a, an, a kind of a, an accounting that is more historically accurate, I think. Yeah. 
so can can I can I ask one follow up on that? So if if, um, if verse one on a toxic say is him giving credit to the previous accounts yeah. that like at least maybe not the results, but at least the intention they've attempted. Yeah. That's yeah. been their intention is yeah. to provide a reasonable according to the logos, you know, a reasonable yeah. account. Yeah. What yeah. I want to add to that is this new dimension of a more thoroughgoing historical. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think so. I think that's brilliant, actually. Um, I've used these verses, and I, I didn't, I don't have my PowerPoint pulled up, but when I, I teach uh, historical critical methods to our doctoral students, um, and sometimes I'll show them this verse, late, these verses laid out in terms of types of criticism and how, you know, even sociological and, and historical and literary, you know, like Luke, uh, the way that he words it justifies those kinds of things but I, I really think that you've your insider you know adding of this has has in my mind I'm starting it's starting to really pop out so Matthew's account is really an account of the fulfillment of Jesus I mean that's just a major theme throughout Matthew okay is Luke acknowledging Matthew and 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 in light of Jonathan Pennington's uh thesis uh that Jesus is really presented as a philosopher, certainly a teacher and whatnot. I think, you know, that, that makes sense here, that, that, that really Matthew has, has written an account that Jesus is Moses-like. I mean, that's as old as was it Bacon, his thesis a long time ago, 100 years ago or more, a couple hundred years, that, you know, Matthew's discourse is organized as five great teaching discourses. Um, so, and then I think of John's gospel, which is highly philosophical, you know, even affirming Jesus as the logos. And then Mark's account, which, you know, apparently comes from uh, Peter. And, and while it, in some ways it's the simplest of the gospels, it also is, is not, it's also very rich and complex and people have suggested it's arranged as a chiasm. And, um, it, it really profiles Jesus as a teacher. In fact, Vernon Robbins has a book called Mark, uh, Jesus as Teacher. And it's about looking at that in, in, uh, in, in Mark. Wow. So, you know, John has these long teaching discourses of Jesus. He's profiled as the logos. Matthew shows Jesus as Moses-like in five great teaching, teaching discourses with the Sermon of the Mount being an, um, an epitome. Uh, been a epitome and then um, mark uh, presenting jesus profiling him particularly as a teacher wow makes me think that luke is writing after the composition of those other gospels because you really can't have many when there's only two i don't think and i don't think it's likely that we've lost other gospels i just don't think it's likely so I'm thinking, um, I would start to reason that Luke is writing at the end of the other Gospels, and I tend to, to date things earlier, quite honestly. I think Mark is 50s. I don't, I don't think it's, you know, 70. Um, I, think it's, I think it's earlier. And so, and maybe John's Gospel is written earlier um, than we often think. Yeah, but anyway, th that's getting us into some larger historical questions. Yeah, oral traditions. Yeah, someone asked, does the many? Yeah, possibly. 
Um, but I don't, I don't, we'd have to look at diagesis, whether that could be an oral category. I think diagesis is a technical, it's a technical term for a narrative, which I think and I suspect is probably written out. So here we have to go to the Greek uh, progymnosmata exercises where one of the exercises that students were learning was how to write out a narrative, diagesis. I mean, it's a technical term for a narrative. Wow, this is, there is so much here. And so let's look at verse two. Just as, this is a subordinate clause, paradosan, uh, the ones who were eyewitnesses and servants, the ones becoming eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning passed on to you, passed on to us. So here, uh, Luke is betraying his sources. And there's two sources, eyewitnesses and servants of the word, technical terms, particularly if you look at Acts, the servants of the word would be Paul. He would be a servant of the word. So you have, you have a double uh, historical uh, witnesses, eyewitnesses, and then those who served in the, the word um, after the eyewitnesses. So, yeah. You also have in Acts 6, this idea of them saying that they're not going to leave the ministry of the word yeah. to wait on tables so that the, yeah. the apostolic office, and then next to the apostles' doctrine um, seems to be their understanding of themselves as being servants of the word. Mm -hmm. In Acts, it occurs, um, John is the helper. Uh, I think this is Paul probably speaking here, Acts 26. So yeah, it's interesting to track in Luke how these words are used of, of uh, I think, other people beyond the original um, eyewitnesses. And then because you look up eyewitnesses. So in terms of the construction, what you have here is a, um, technically this participle, genomenoi, uh, new, is a, uh, is a substantive um, participle. The ones having become, and then what are they becoming? This verb takes predicate nominatives, eyewitnesses and servants. And here you have a discontinuous element, servants of the word, uh, of, of the matter. And maybe that of the matter, of the word applies to both um, eyewitnesses or and then we have the qualifier from the beginning so probably probably what you have is a nice balancing of of two modifiers one is from the beginning eyewitnesses and then the other is uh servants of the word so i would suggest that you have that going on these are the sources and they're passing this along to us so there seems to be some broader appeal uh to a community, so not just Luke, you know, individually, but that these people are, are sharing something that benefits us, both Theophilus, Luke, and then maybe other people as well. This is kind of like public uh, material. Excuse me. Uh, you, you may have. Pardon me, one other question. 
Mara. Uh, you had talk, uh, just talked about Via Gason. Um, and yesterday I did a presentation on Lucian. He wrote How to Write History. And ah. he was arguing the very clear boundaries between different types of genres. And he uses the term Via Gason to describe narrative as the way you should do history. Yeah. So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. History. Fun. So Mara just reported that she was looking at Lucian's discourse on how to write narrative and history. And technically, he argues that diagesis is the way. Diagesis is the proper form of historical writing. So there is a lot to research here. And it's, it's great to be in an environment like Asbury. We have doctoral students that are really pushing beyond me. And I don't want to be intimidated by that. I want to say go, you know, because there's so much to be learned, really. And we can't, no one person can really take it all in. But um, yeah, a lot of good insight here, a lot of good feedback. So my contribution is to be aware of that background, also to be aware of the Greek constructions and that help profile and construe what's being said. So I think that's it. Any other questions? Is is the article hoy? Is that is that connected to both of the nouns, or are you seeing Celia? Um, it's technically, I think, going with the ganamini. Uh, oh, okay, I got you. Make that substantive, substantival. And then uh, these are the predicate nominatives of the substantival participle. Okay, I got yeah. you. Thanks, Dr. Long. Yeah, yeah, you're very welcome. That's how I would do it. Yeah. All right, well, I think that's it. I think we've gone through most everything. Obviously, there's more granular detail that we could do. Um, but I think we've gotten most of it. I've learned a lot. I always learn a lot when I am teaching um, from students' questions and I start to see stuff that I hadn't otherwise seen. All right, well, we'll pick it up here, uh, verse five. And the Greek will be a little bit more straightforward. I mean, this is, a, this is quite a, he's swinging for the fence with this introduction, I think. It really is a, an elegant introduction. And uh, so anyway, thanks for joining and spread the word. And uh, hope to see you next time. Interested in growing your ancient language skills but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glow's House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glow'sahouse.com today. Glow's House, language resources for the global community.